If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn once again to the Gospel of John, the third chapter. We're going to be continuing this morning in the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus that we began last week at the beginning of this chapter. We'll be looking specifically at verses 9 through 15 this morning. And then next week we will look at what I believe is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. John 3.16. But until we get there, we're going to look at what Jesus has to tell us about the new birth. He's been speaking about the new birth to Nicodemus. And now this morning he continues to tell us about the new birth. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would not only read and understand, but we would be moved and changed by your word, that we would not remain the same as we are now, but that as we exit this place, we would be a bit more like Jesus. We would have the mind of Christ and seek to do your will. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So we pick up again this morning in the middle of this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. We saw last week that Nicodemus was an example of someone who has a connection to Jesus, but doesn't believe in him fully. Nicodemus was willing to compliment Jesus, but he didn't understand his, his teaching. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again, Nicodemus was confused, and he responded with skepticism. So Jesus patiently answered his questions, giving some examples of what he meant. But now we see that Nicodemus did not understand because he had not been brought to spiritual life. So Jesus points Nicodemus to three ways that he would see the new birth. And in this text, John points us also to these three ways of seeing the new birth. 
First, the Bible tells us of the new birth. We know that the new birth exists and that it's true because we have the Bible and its testimony. Secondly, transformed lives tell of the new birth. It's not just that the Bible speaks of the new birth, but the lives of those who have been transformed by the power of God tell of the new birth. And then finally, we are to look to Jesus for the new birth. The Bible tells us of it. Our transformed lives tell us of it. But most importantly, Jesus tells us of the new birth. Well, let's begin then by looking at how John tells us the Bible tells us of the new birth. Now, you remember who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a well-known and respected Bible teacher. He is the headline speaker at the various conferences in and about Jerusalem. He is a theologian, a teacher. He is well-known and well-loved in society. He's not just a moral man and a theologian. He's also a ruler of the people. He is a leader, John tells us. He is part of the Sanhedrin, that group of Jewish elders who led the Jewish people underneath Roman rule. And Nicodemus came and he at least showed interest in Jesus or curiosity about Jesus at the beginning of this chapter. But you will remember that Nicodemus sees himself as an equal to Jesus. He comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you teach things come from God. We teach things from God too. Let's have a discussion here so that we can better inform each other. But Jesus responds by giving him a primer on the new birth. Jesus begins in verse 3 with a bold and straightforward statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then, as Nicodemus is confused, Jesus says once again in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is Jesus giving an allusion, you may recall, to Old Testament teaching from the prophet Ezekiel. But there is yet a third time when Jesus reiterates this truth to Nicodemus. He describes the new birth as the work of God in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then finally, in verse 8, he tells Nicodemus to look for the effects of the new birth. You may not be able to see the new birth, but you can see its effects, the effect of the work of the Spirit. So not once, not twice, but three times with an example, Jesus tries to teach Nicodemus. But Nicodemus just doesn't get it. It's not just that Nicodemus follows up with another question. In verse 9, he says, how can these things be? But this is a question in which Nicodemus expresses his complete lack of belief in what Jesus is saying. We might translate it slightly differently by saying, how can this happen? 
It's obvious that Nicodemus thinks this is impossible. He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about, and he can't understand how this bears any relationship to reality. You may recall that earlier he said to Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Climb back up into my mother's womb and be born again? It's a category that Nicodemus doesn't even understand. And this is because for years, Nicodemus has been teaching people how they can enter the kingdom of God. And he would have told people that there are requirements to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be obedient. You have to perform all of the sacrifices and the rites. You have to be a part of ethnic Israel. And if you do all of these things, then you are a part of the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus never even thought about the new birth, let alone thought it was necessary. And so his question here in verse 9 is not really, explain it to me some more. It's really, that's impossible. I don't believe it. So Jesus answers him with a rebuke for failing to know. And this is an example of the perfect interactions that Jesus has with people. We're going to see more of this in the chapters to come. Jesus knows exactly what to say to everyone. And this shouldn't surprise us, because you will recall at the end of chapter 2, John told us that Jesus knew what was in all men, and he knew all people. And so Jesus knows exactly what Nicodemus needs to hear, exactly what the sticking point is, and he comes directly to him in verse 10. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, the definite article here is intentional. You are the teacher of Israel. You're the expert. You're the authority. You're the one that people go to when they have a Bible question. You're supposed to know all about the Bible and all about God. That's who you are, Nicodemus. And you're telling me you don't understand this basic principle? You see, we like to go to experts, don't we? We like to go to people who know what they're talking about. It, it, or perhaps we hold ourselves out as being an expert in a certain area. Before we speak, we, we tell someone how long we've been involved in this line of work or how much we know or how much we've studied. You wouldn't go to a mechanic who had never lifted a wrench. You wouldn't go to a lawyer who'd never read a law book. You go to the experts. I know what this is like. In July, I'm going to go, Lord willing, with my wife on a vacation to Scotland. And I don't plan to try to learn all of the intricacies and ins and outs of Scotland. I'm going with my close friend and his wife, David and Sheena Strain. They're from Scotland. They know all about Scotland. And as I said to them, my plan is simply to follow behind and do what you say and open up my wallet. I'm not going to try to figure out what I need to do. You're the expert. I'm not. And you see... Here, Nicodemus is the expert. He should know this. He should be providing instruction rather than being ignorant. Well, what does he not know? Nicodemus doesn't know the Bible. 
I know that sounds a bit harsh, but you see, these things that Jesus is talking about in verse 10 are not new. You see, we can come to John chapter 3 and listen to Jesus and think that this is something radically new that Jesus is proposing. That no one has ever talked about the new birth. That no one has ever spoken of needing a new heart. That no one has ever told anyone that it needs to be a work of God and His Spirit. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. You see, the Old Testament was full of the truth that sinners need new hearts. And that the only one who can give them a new heart is God. I'd like us to just walk through a few of these so you understand what I mean. If you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to open it up near the beginning. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. They are written by Moses. And the last of them is called Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the law. And if you turn to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 6, you will read this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Do you see what Moses is saying here? God is going to give you a heart that will allow you to love God. And you will love God with all your heart, all your soul, and you will live because of that. Seems clear from the Old Testament. Well, Moses is perhaps one of the best known figures in the Old Testament. Let's turn to another equally well-known figure, David. We could turn through the Bible to the book of Psalms till we come to Psalm 51. You may recall that in Psalm 51, David gives this great confession of his sin and he repents of his sin and asks God to forgive him of his sin. It is a classic example of what we should do when we have sinned against God, that we should be open with God, ask for forgiveness, and repent. But I think sometimes we forget what's found in the middle of that psalm. In verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you see what David's saying there? I need a new heart. You've got to give it to me, Lord. You need to give me your spirit. It's just what Moses said. It's just what Jesus has said. Then we could go to the prophet Jeremiah, to the 24th chapter of Jeremiah, verse 7, where God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God is telling the people of Israel that he will give them a new heart. And then in verse 31, he says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah is telling us that God makes a covenant with his people, that he gives them a new heart, and that he writes his word on their heart. How does this happen? Well, Joel tells us in Joel chapter 2 that it comes to pass that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. The way that they will know that God has given them His Spirit is He will pour it out upon them. And then finally, you will remember, last week we looked at Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And so all of this throughout all of the Old Testament is well known to Nicodemus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, and yet you do not understand? You have all of these scriptures. And if we had the time, if you didn't want to go home for lunch, we could pull out 10 or 15 or 20 other passages from the Old Testament along the same lines. The Old Testament is full of this truth. And what Jesus is saying is that this is the most basic truth. Now, when I say basic, I don't mean the simplest truth. I mean a foundational truth. It's elementary. If you don't know this, you won't know anything else spiritual, Jesus says. You have to begin here. Unless you have been born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You cannot hear spiritual things. You cannot understand them. And yet Nicodemus here is acting as if he is the expert without even knowing the basics. It's as if someone came up to you and said, I will teach you calculus. And you found out they didn't know how to add. You would say, this doesn't work. How can you know the greater when you don't even know the lesser? You see, Nicodemus didn't know his Bible. He didn't know the word of God that he had before him and he'd studied. It hadn't penetrated his heart. But remember, this exchange is recorded for us. Remember John's purpose for this gospel? The purpose of this gospel is so that you may believe. And by believing, you may have eternal life in Christ's name. That means that we are more than observers when we come to this text. If you would enter the kingdom of God, if you would have spiritual life, if you would have the blessings of God's promises, you need to know this truth. And this truth's principle applies to us in an even greater way. Because all of those Old Testament passages that we looked at are available to us. But there are also many, many New Testament passages that we have that Nicodemus didn't. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he writes in Romans 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And again in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Over and over again, we are told that we are being transformed, that we are being renewed, that we are being made spiritual, and that is a work of God. So much so that Hebrews chapter 10 will quote Jeremiah 
and say, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's God's promise, not just to the Israelites, not just to the Hebrews, but to you. This is the truth we must know. So the question comes to you now. Do you know your Bible? I don't mean just intellectually. I don't mean just that you've memorized some portions of it. Or that you can give an outline of certain books of it. Or give the sense of some stories in it. I mean, do you know it so that you live by it? Do you know that only God can give new life? Do you know that you can't bring about that change? <coughs> Even more, parents, do you know that you cannot make your children born again? That you cannot do a work of God in them? That it is God alone that you must seek? In the most important and fundamental matter of life and existence, the Bible is our guide. God has given it to us to show us the way. Don't forget what God tells you. Don't be distracted by other voices around you. Well, Jesus then shows Nicodemus that there is a second way to know the new birth. He does this in a way to get Nicodemus's attention. In verse 11, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So the question is, what is Jesus doing here? Who is the we that's speaking? I will spare you hours and hours of commentary. Some say it's Jesus and John the Baptist. Others say it's Jesus and his disciples. Still others say it's Jesus and the prophets. And some say it's Jesus speaking for the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think the simplest explanation is that Jesus is responding to what Nicodemus says in verse 2. Do you remember that? Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had said we in an attempt to impress Jesus, in an attempt to tell Jesus that everybody around knows this. This is the word on the street, Jesus. It's we. You know how that goes, don't you? Parents, when your children come up to you and they say, you know, I want to go to the movies. And you say, well, who's going to the movies? And they say, well, everyone. We're all going to the movies. And then, if you're a sharp parent, you'll say, give me the names of the people going to the movies. Because you know as well as I do that everyone is usually one or two people. Maybe three people. You know, pastors experience this all the time. One of the famous ways to approach a pastor is to say, Pastor, you know People are saying. Which people? Who are they? Tell them to come talk to me. I'd love to hear what they're saying. And you see, Nicodemus was doing that to impress. Now, Jesus doesn't need to impress Nicodemus, but I think Jesus wants Nicodemus to know that the gig is up. That 
He can't fool Jesus. And so what Jesus says is, you may think this, but we know this. And we see this in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11 and verse 12. We know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And the you there, Texas version again, is y'all. It's plural. You see, Jesus is saying, you may think you know, but you don't. And you don't because you don't believe our testimony. This is a direct assault on Nicodemus' failure to believe in Jesus and who he is. Jesus is saying, you think you know all kinds of spiritual things. But you don't even have the basics. And if you did have the basics, you would believe my testimony. And so again, Jesus chastises Nicodemus for not understanding what he should. He picks it up again in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then the question to us comes, well, what are the earthly things? What are the heavenly things? And some say that the earthly things are things of the earth like wind that Jesus was talking about or physical birth. But there's one problem with that. Who doesn't believe in wind? Who doesn't believe in physical birth? Everyone does. That can't be the earthly thing that Jesus is saying you don't believe in. No. I think instead Jesus is talking about the new birth. Now, you may say, Pastor, you just told us last week that the new birth comes from the Spirit, that it comes from God, that it's not of the flesh, that it's not earthly. How can the new birth be an earthly thing? And I think what's going on here is Jesus is continuing what he was saying in verse 8 about the wind. He's saying... The new birth is earthly in the sense that it can be observed by your senses. Whereas the things that are heavenly are those that can only be revealed from God. And so the earthly things that you should see, Nicodemus, is the transformed lives of those who have believed. These are a great witness to the gospel. Because the gospel is not just some facts that you are to memorize. It's not just some truths to profess. I am glad if you have memorized the Romans road. I'm glad if you, glad if you can recite from memory John 3.16. I'm glad if you can recite from memory Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. But that's not the sum of the gospel. The gospel changes people. If you know the gospel, if you believe in Jesus... You cannot remain the same. The new birth makes you a new creation. It changes your words, your actions, your dreams, your relationships. I think one of the problems in the church today is that we think the absence of wickedness is conversion. That it's enough to hide our sin. It's enough to be respectable. And so we think that if those who are in the church who are simply not caught in gross sin, that they must be Christians. 
that they don't need to show evidence of change, that they don't need to show evidence of walking with Jesus. As long as they are respectable, that's enough. But to know Jesus by faith means that we are made new. It should show in our lives. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you don't believe what you can see, how could you possibly believe what I tell you and can only be known by revelation? This truth challenges us. If you have been born again, there should be no doubt. You should have different relationships. You should be different in school from others around you. You should be different in how you treat your words with respect to honesty. You should be different in your actions with respect to kindness. You should be different in your goals in life. Now, that doesn't mean that only those who have lived horrible lives before can believe in Jesus now. It's not as if you need to have been amongst the worst of the worst, like the Apostle Paul, to show the change. No, for you young people here today, you are blessed to be here today in church hearing God's Word. And you may be spared much hurt and heartache, pain and loss of wandering far from God. But you still should show evidence of the new birth. The new birth makes you different from those around you who don't know Jesus. And that gives you opportunities to tell others about Jesus in a real and genuine way. That is your testimony that Jesus describes in verse 11. Jesus has equipped you to tell others through the change that he has made in you. Think about all the testimony that Jesus has given throughout all of the centuries through Christians and through the church. Think about how much the world has changed through the testimony of believers. Some of you may know that before I was a pastor and in a previous life, I was a lawyer. You may not know that in a previous life, before that life, I was a classicist. That is, I studied Latin and Greek and Roman and Greek civilization. And there is a very famous classicist named Tom Holland. I highly recommend his books on ancient history. He is well-read and a great writer. He is also, by his own admission, a pagan. He is not a Christian. He says he was actually drawn toward that field of study because he was drawn toward wars and violence and the ancient world and buildings and architecture and all that the ancient world represented. And as he studied the ancient world and moved toward the medieval and modernity, he says that Christianity has changed the world for the better. Now, this is not a pastor. He's not an apologist. He's someone that doesn't even believe in Jesus. But he's been able to see the earthly things. He sees hospitals and universities and schools. And he sees adoption agencies. 
And he sees aid and assistance to those who are poor or infirm. He sees those who fight for life. Those who say that women are equal made in the image of God and the equals of men. That children have value even if they are born with handicaps. This is all a part of people following Jesus. Without Jesus' followers, none of that would exist. None of it did. You see, we can see evidence of the new birth by lives transformed. James Montgomery Boyce asks this question of us. Ask yourself, has my life been changed? Can I point to anything that will hold up as tangible evidence for myself and others of the power of God through Jesus to transform my thinking and my lifestyle? Can you answer that question? You see, that's what we're called to do, to show lives transformed by the new birth. Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Bible tells of the new birth. And he tells him that evidence of changed lives speaks of the new birth also. And then he moves on to a third way to know about the new birth. It's the most important way. It's the most authoritative way. Jesus says, you need to look to me. You need to look to Jesus for the new birth. Jesus says, I know about the new birth. And I came to tell you about it. Do you see what Jesus says in verse 13? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now that is an odd sentence at first. And it's maybe hard to understand. We're wondering who's ascended into heaven. Who's going to descend? How is this related to Jesus? But what Jesus is saying is, anyone can understand the earthly things, that is the effects of the new birth. But only one who comes down from heaven can bring the heavenly things. And no one, Jesus says, has ascended into heaven. That is, no one other than Jesus has been with God. No one other than Jesus is God. There are those who have been brought into blessing and communion with God. Enoch, Elijah, the Old Testament saints. But only Jesus can speak authoritatively about heavenly things. Because he is equipped to do so. Jesus highlights his special authority by using his title, the Son of Man. You will remember that when he speaks of the Son of Man, that speaks of his deity. He takes that language from the prophet Daniel, the one who is with the Ancient of Days, the one who is given dominion over every kingdom and every nation and who reigns forever and ever. And so it's not that Jesus ascended into heaven and is therefore qualified. No, he's actually saying no one has ascended. Jesus is only qualified because heaven is his home in the first place. He comes down to bring heavenly things to earth. And this is a reminder to us that we have to listen to Jesus. Only Jesus has the truth we need. Only He can save. All other voices are just noise. They may act as if they know the truth, they may act profound, but only Jesus knows the heavenly truth you need. You can trust him. 
And this is crucially important because of what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus takes Nicodemus and us on an Old Testament journey. He goes to a story found in Numbers 21. It occurs during the time of the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness. And you remember what that looked like. It was 40 years of the Israelites whining, moaning, and complaining about just about everything. But this incident, they were especially moaning and complaining. It says that they, asked, they told Moses that they had no water, and the food they had was horrible, rotten food, worthless food. Now, imagine what that sounds like in God's ear. Ladies, you recall days where you have slaved over a hot stove and put together a nutritious, wonderful meal, and you set it in front of your kids, and they look and they say, Do we have to eat this junk? I hate broccoli. I hate carrots. We should have sugared cereal or donuts for dinner. Why can't you give us anything good like donuts? Right? That's what they were doing. They were complaining about what God had given to them. And so God sent serpents. The Bible tells us they were fiery serpents, not because they were on fire, but because when they bit the Israelites, they were caught up with a fever, and many were ill, and many died. And so the Israelites went to Moses, as they often did, and said, please intercede for us. We can't believe how dumb we were. Please help us, help us. And so God heard from Moses, and he told Moses, I want you to fashion a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and hold the pole up and tell anyone who's been bitten to look upon the pole and they'll be healed and saved. Now, can you imagine anything that would sound more ridiculous to the Israelites? You see, they might have been expecting, you know, what we need to do is make some medicine and we need to get a control group of Israelites and a sick group of Israelites and we need to give them this medicine and see who it improves and how quickly they improve. We need to do a double blind study and get people better. Or they might have said, you know what we need is self-reformation. We promise never to do that again. We won't complain again ever. You ever heard that? We won't complain ever and we won't go where the snakes are going. And that will solve the problem. But of course it wouldn't. Because those who were bitten were still dying. That wouldn't solve the problem. Or they might have said, let's fight the serpents. Let's get swords and spears and attack them and kill all the serpents. And that wouldn't help either. Because even if they could, some would get bit as they were fighting. And all who were bit would still not survive. No, the only thing they could do was look to the serpent lifted up. They had to believe God's word. They had to look at the image of the thing that was deadly to them, the serpent. That wouldn't have made any sense to them at all. They would have wondered what they could do. But God said, you can't do anything. Let me show you how much you can't do anything. I want you to look at this serpent. 
And Jesus tells us in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, we've seen this more than once. John loves these words that can have two meanings. Remember, born again, born from above. Well, now he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. That is, he must be physically lifted up on the cross. But this word also means exalted, which in the greatest of all ironies is exactly what happened. By being put on that device of torture, the most shameful death imaginable, Jesus was exalted before all as the Redeemer. And all we have to do is look to him who became sin to be freed from our sin. Do you see the connection there with the serpent? What a way of salvation for the Son of God to be lifted up on a cross and to become sin for sinners. Who would think of such a thing? Salvation found only by looking, believing, not by anything we could do. Jesus was lifted up for all to see, for all to look to, so that by looking they would believe, and by believing have eternal life. The new birth begins through the work of Jesus, received by faith. I'd like to conclude this morning doing something I don't often do, but I must do it in this instance because you must hear it. I'm going to conclude with a rather lengthy quote from J.C. Ryle. If you don't know who J.C. Ryle is, you need to go home this afternoon and Google him and Amazon him and buy every book that you can get written by him. He is one of my favorite theologians. He is the evangelical bishop. He wondrously speaks of the gospel. And he says this about this passage. When a person fleeing his desperate need by reason of sin flees to Christ and trusts in him, leans on him and commits his soul entirely to him as his savior and redeemer, he is said in the language of our text to believe on him. Now, the simpler our views of faith, the better. The more steadily we keep in view the Israelites looking at the brazen serpent, the more we shall understand the words before us. Believing is neither more nor less than heart looking. Whosoever looked at the brazen serpent was made well. However ill he was, and however feeble his look. Just so, whoever looks to Jesus by faith is pardoned. However great his sin may have been, and however feeble his faith. Are you ready to heart look? To look to the one who was lifted up and defined salvation in Jesus alone? The new birth is essential. We know this from the Bible. We know this from the transformed lives of others around us. And we find the new birth by going to Jesus. Let's pray.